0: Back in January 1997, one of the world's most experienced sailors, a guy called Tony Bullimore, was competing in a non-stop global race in his yacht. And you do it completely on your own. But in one of the most remotest parts of the sea, I think you'll see some pictures come up, Tony found himself in a huge storm fighting high winds and 30-foot waves. And suddenly his yacht, the Exede Challenger, capsized when the keel under the boat that helps keep it stable just completely snapped off. Tony tried to reach for his life raft, but one of the hatches slammed shut and cut off his finger. Ouch. Tony managed to climb into the hull of his upside-down boat, and he managed to push a distress signal out of the broken window with a faint hope it would go to the surface and let people know where he was. And the conditions he now found himself in were just a total nightmare completely alone in the pitch-black darkness of the upside-down hull of his boat, surrounded by icy waters. And to make things worse, the air pocket where Tony now was had a limited amount of oxygen, so every breath he took, it was running out. We're going to leave it there, a bit of a cliffhanger, but we'll come back to Tony later. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. But while none of us are likely to face this same scenario, all of us will be able to think of times in our lives when we felt a little bit like Tony did, metaphorically trapped in the upside-down hull of a capsized boat, isolated in the dark. Maybe you're in that season right now. Maybe you've experienced it recently, perhaps facing a bereavement, a relational situation that just won't seem to resolve, challenges with your kids, an addictive behavior that you can't shake, something that has literally led you to your knees, whatever that might be. And it's like, I just don't know how I'm going to get through the next season. The reality is that in this room today, there will be all sorts of challenges that different ones of us will be facing, some of them sort of out there, known by people, some of them secret, hidden. How do we journey through those inevitably tougher seasons of life? What can help us hold on to hope and keep us moving forwards? And if we describe ourselves as followers of Jesus, how can we trust God in the dark? These are the kind of questions for today as we continue our series in the Psalms, this book of the Bible that has 150 ancient songs and poems. And the series, we've called it, Lamp to Our Feet, because the Psalms, we find, cover such a huge range of experience and emotion that we can find words in them that help us navigate such a varied terrain of our life, whether it be words for the grateful in Psalm 92, Words for the worried in Psalm 46, or last week it was words for the rejoicing, Psalm 98. Today we're in Psalm 13, where we find words for the hopeless. So before we carry on, I think Ivana is going to come with Andrew, and Ivana is just going to read Psalm 13, and it's going to have some music in the background, just simply because often it will help remind us, originally these songs, these poems would have been set to music. Thanks, guys.
1: Psalm 13, for the director of music, a psalm of David. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. Now, this is a classic example of a psalm of lament or complaint. And there's about 50 of them that are like it in the book of Psalms, so like a third of the whole book. So we had lots of options for today. But Psalm 13, it has these three sections, which I think will pop up in the screen in different colors. And as we look through them together and wonder, why on earth are these kind of psalms in the Bible at all? We're going to see these three things. Firstly, the challenge to hope in verses 1 and 2. Then there's a cry for hope verses 3 and 4. And finally, the cause of hope, verse 5 and 6. So let's look at that. Firstly, the challenge to hope. How long, Lord? How long? How long? How long? Perhaps slightly risky question to focus on as I'm starting a talk, but maybe don't dwell on it too much as I carry on. But seriously, what is going on here for this question to get repeated four times like this? Well, we don't get told the context of Psalm 13, But the little header at the top, which is part of the original translation, it says it was written by King David, the second king of Israel. Now David has his share of high moments. He was the humble shepherd boy who rose up with this amazing faith and the humble slingshot, and he defeated the giant Goliath. It was David who was chosen by God to replace King Saul, the king who completely went off the rails. And of all the kings of Israel, it's David who's the one who's the kind of star king. He's the one that stands out as the greatest. But David also went through his share of hard times, some bad moments. And I suppose the backdrop of Psalm 13 must have been one of those. Maybe it was when Saul's violent jealousy for David forced him to flee away and hide in holes in the ground and caves to avoid being killed. Maybe it was one of the many times when David, the, the people of Israel was surrounded by a huge enemy army and David was in charge of calling the shots. Maybe it was later in his life when David's own son, Absalom, launched a full-scale rebellion against him. Imagine that. And David again had to flee from home and family um, and hide away. We don't get the background of Psalm 13. But in one sense, I think that's quite handy because if we knew what was going on with David, we might be quite tempted to think that because we aren't going through the same thing, his words don't apply to us. But because David's struggle isn't revealed, we can embrace Psalm 13 as a help to our own journey whatever it is that we're going through. I remember, for me, first discovering these kind of downbeat psalms, these psalms of lament, and really appreciating them while living abroad in Israel with a Christian charity. I was pretty young, and during my second year there, one of our team experienced a really devastating, horrible tragedy back home, and she she flew home. Then our two team leaders, um, uh, they were actually asked to leave Israel by the security forces under suspicion of being Christian missionaries which actually, to be fair, was, was what we were, so that was fair enough. <laughs> but I was given the job of leading the team in that moment and found myself feeling out of my depth, kind of bobbing around in that upturned hull of the boat, isolated, alone. And it was during that time that I found psalms like this in a whole new way and began to find meaning in them and treasure them in my relationship with God. But what makes these kind of psalms helpful in the dark times? Firstly, I think... These psalms make it okay to have feelings of hopelessness and to express those feelings. The late author and pastor Tim Keller says the psalms are like the godly ancient version of what we today call getting in touch with our feelings. And so in verse 1 to 4, we see David pouring out his heart and his mind. He acknowledges the wrestling in his thoughts. He opens up about the sorrow that he's feeling. He comes clean that he's feeling overwhelmed, overpowered. And the fact that these verses, and many others like it, are found in this book, I think are a sure indication that God wants us to do the same in our relationship with Him. But while this might be an encouragement for us to express our feelings, it doesn't necessarily make it easy, especially for some of us. I know, for me, I have um, a bit of a tendency to compartmentalize my feelings. Anyone else can relate to that? It can actually be quite handy, I found, because I can stay pretty calm, pretty non-reactive in a drama, a crisis. So recently I was at a meeting at work here, and I had this like, really hot um, coffee from a takeaway cup, and suddenly the bottom of the cup just completely fell out, and it spilled all over my lap. And um, I just very quietly and calmly said to the room, guys, I think I might need a cloth over here. Everyone else in the room is like, there's drama, there's expression, people are jumping up and down their chairs, non-reactive, it has that kind of benefit sometimes. But seriously, one of the downsides of this compartmentalizing is that my emotions could get sort of put in an internal box somewhere, but although they get put away, they don't go away. This approach usually backfires quite badly for me because the emotional compartment I have is inevitably not that watertight, some of you can relate to this, and so it tends to come out at some other point. For me, you know, I might find myself feeling quite low on a given day and then as I'm chatting to my wife, Lizzie, she'll remind me that five to seven days previously, something had happened, which I've locked away over here, and now it's coming out a bit later. We're living at a time, aren't we, when things like mindfulness and emotional therapy, they're really confirming the importance and the benefit of what King David found out 3,000 years ago. Opening up, expressing our feelings. But one of the things we see David do differently from some of the modern therapeutic models is he directs the outpouring of his emotion completely towards God. David cries out, not just how long, but how long, Lord. He doesn't just vent his feelings out. As helpful as that can be, he vents them up. He directs the expression of his heart to God, even when he's struggling to feel that God is there. And to me, this illustrates one aspect of authentic faith that we see throughout the Bible, but especially in in Psalms like this. It's not a faith that tries to ignore suffering or sweeps pain under the carpet. It's not a faith that suppresses how we're really feeling. It's not a faith that demands positive thinking. It's not a faith that's just for the good times. It's not a faith that denies the struggle is real. It's a faith that can accommodate our questions, that can handle our doubts, that can hear the full extent of our pain expressed. Or rather, it's a faith in the God who's big enough for all those things. And so we can see that David's faith exists. It lives in this space of tension, of trusting and holding on, that God is still there, while at the same time acknowledging his reality. He doesn't feel like he is. And we see exactly the same thing in the life of Jesus. And he would have known most of these psalms off by heart. And so at the cross... As Jesus dies, we see him crying out similar words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus always knew perfectly that God was there. He was fully aware of everything that was happening at the cross. Yet at the same time, Jesus' humanity has room to express how he feels in that moment, alone and far from God. And so we have the invitation to do the same. If we can find this unfiltered expression in the Psalms and in the life of Jesus, can I encourage you today, wherever you find yourself asking how long, in those moments when you're really going through it and you're drawn to your knees, that God wants us to pour out our hearts to him, express it to him. But how might we do that practically? Well, I think there's there's loads of ways, but let me just mention a few that have been helpful in my life. Um, Someone really who still struggles with this and could grow in this area. And the first one is just a shout out for journaling. And I think we used to talk about journaling a little bit more than we do now. But I remember as an early Christian, when I was about 15 years old, I used to like, write in my journal every single day, basically. I would process my relationship with God. I would write out little scriptures. I would describe how I was feeling as I wrote it all out. And it wasn't just cathartic. It was helpful in me processing with the Lord what was going on. And also, it's something that you can look back on and see how God has been with us in the highs and the lows. So just a shout out for journaling there. And I think I've sort of had a, um, I've lost out because I don't do it as much now. Another thing I have done more consistently is kind of what I'll call prayer venting. And it's similar to Psalm 13. It's where maybe I'm on a walk somewhere and I'm just talking out loud and I'm saying to God how I really feel. And for me, it helps to do this out loud, which makes a good reason to do it walking around in the countryside rather than on the tram in the way into work. <laughs> But praying out loud means that I can practically feel myself more present to God, more present to myself, more present to what's really going on. So for me, it's important to do it out loud, sometimes even to shout it out loud. Another one is having a diet of reading these kind of scriptures, these kind of words. Again, Tim Keller, apparently he wrote the whole book of Psalms, all 150, every single month for the last 20 years of his life. So he found them just permeating, just always there, giving articulation to what was going on in his heart. So that's the challenge to hope we see in verse 1 and 2. What about the cry for hope? Look on me, David says, and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall. David moves from pouring out his heart to God to asking God to intervene. The prayer of lament, it becomes a prayer of request, of petition. But I find it fascinating to see what David does and doesn't ask for. Where is David's prayer for God to change the situation? Where is David's request to remove a certain enemy? Where is David's request for God to do something external in those circumstances? And actually in loads of prayers in the Bible, including those of David, other ones, we find him precisely asking to do something like that, for God to do something practical. And so these kind of prayers we pray are totally legit. Like Jesus himself taught us to pray, give us daily bread. But in this case, David prays not for a change in circumstance, but rather for a change in perspective. He prays firstly for God to help him see differently, rather than make a difference in what he sees. I don't know about you, but sometimes... I found God answered my prayers in this way, even when I may have preferred him to do something a little bit more practical. But I've also experienced the amazing blessing of encountering God in the midst of struggle, even when nothing on the outside changes. I remember coming down the front here one Sunday, Just a little thing, a number of years ago, and I was super stressed and anxious about my university course in architecture at the time. And I was failing it, and I'd failed a module, and everything was on top of me, and I couldn't really see how to progress through. And as someone prayed for me and simply invited the Holy Spirit to come, my design project didn't suddenly suddenly come as an inspiration. My drawings didn't float down from the ceiling, although that would have been nice. Instead, I encountered God's presence and his peace. And that was enough for me to have a fresh perspective, to see differently. It gave me enough to step out into Monday morning with a new strength and a new energy because I, got, I knew God was there. And David's words in verse 3, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. They remind me of a similar prayer we find in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul, the early church leader, he writes these words. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, the eyes of your heart may be opened. In order that you may know the hope to which God has called you. His incomparably great power for us who believe. And so we see Paul praying just like David did. For open eyes, for enlightened eyes, for perspective. It's like an inside job again firstly. He prays for the Ephesians to be able to see and to know the hope they have. No matter what is going on. It's a hope that's not tethered to the external circumstances. Instead, it's a hope rooted in their relationship with God, and His great power that is at working them is at work in them, no matter what's going on on the outside. And this is the kind of hope we share and treasure in Jesus. It's a hope that is more than good feelings and beyond our circumstances. It's a hope that's able to withstand those tough times, not because of us, but because of Him and that great power at work in us. It's a hope that transcends understanding whatever we're facing. And perhaps today you need like a fresh dose of that kind of hope for your eyes, that light for your eyes to be able to hold on to hope. And I think today it would be great for you to come and and just have someone pray for you for that. By all means, let's not stop asking God to do the practical things, to bring healing or provision, to restore, to do things in our circumstances. But let's also remember to pray for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes the eyes of our hearts, that we may see and know this hope above and beyond what we're going through. But finally, what is the cause of hope? In this last section, David says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Now, does anyone remember Susie's talk a few months ago called Remember the But with one T? If you were there, you can't have forgotten the title. But here it's David who remembers the but. As he pivots from the struggles of verse 1 to 4 to end this psalm on a high. And the thing he pins it all on is God's unfailing love and his salvation. They change everything. But I trust in your unfailing love, he writes. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And that Hebrew word there for unfailing love in verse 5 is chesed. Try saying it with me. It's right from the back of the throat. One, two, three, chesed. Very Israeli. Chesed is an amazing word. It's found 127 times in the Psalms alone. And we often translate it in English simply as love. But it doesn't really do it justice. Because today we say we love all sorts of things. I love coffee. I love gardening. I love holidays. I love the lionesses. We all love them at the moment, don't we? But chesed is more than having this kind of affection for something, however much we like it, even in England win. Chesed is so much more. It's God's kindness to you. It's his mercy. It's his loyal favor in your life. It's his sure promise of care and compassion. And in the Jesus Storybook Bible for Kids, chesed is beautifully captured again and again. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So when David remembers the but in verse five, it's this chesed love, this unfailing love that he's banking on. That's the cause of his hope. But here's the tension of Psalm 13. How can David be sure of this chesed love? What's the cause of his hope and trust? Especially as nothing appears to have changed. How can he have grounds to trust God in this tough time? Well, for David and the other Israelites who would have first read Psalm 13, They could look back on their collective history, the legacy of what God had done for them. They could recall the true story a few hundred years previous when God had miraculously saved them from slavery to the Egyptians, delivered them amazingly. They had this story of who they were. That was the story of their identity. That story was rooted in God's action, his salvation for them as a nation. And they'd experienced his love through that. And so even though David finds himself in a tight spot, he deliberately turns his thoughts to remember, to rehearse, to recall that story. It's like he's talking to himself, addressing his own soul, taking himself in hand and saying, if God was like it then, David, he's going to be like it now. If he's done it before, he's going to do it again. And so I will trust and I will rejoice. And how does that apply to us today? Well, I think there's a clue in that word salvation. The Hebrew word there for salvation is Yeshua. That's an easier one to say, isn't it, Yeshua? And Yeshua, salvation, is literally the word we translate Jesus. It's Jesus' name. So when Mary, his mother, would have been at home with little Jesus, she would have said, hey, Yeshua, it's dinner time. Hey, salvation, it's dinner time. Hey, Yeshua, it's time to do your homework. Hey, salvation, it's time to do your homework. So Psalm 13, 5 could be translated, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your Jesus, in your salvation, do you see? For us today, we see what Psalm 13 is ultimately pointing towards because we live with the benefit of knowing who Jesus is and everything that he's done to prove God's unfailing love and to bring us God's Yeshua salvation. Whereas David and the people of Israel look back on God saving them from Egypt, We can look back on God saving us from the powers of sin and death and darkness. We see Jesus entering the hull of our capsized boat and rescuing us from it through his death and resurrection on our behalf. And we can remember the but along with David because of verses like this one in Romans. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when circumstances make God feel distant, when our struggles and sufferings cause doubts and questions to surface, these are the truths that we can hold on to, a hope that is unchanging and a hope that is sure. And remember Tony trapped in that boat, isolated in the dark. Well, that distress signal he put through the window, is somehow did manage to make it to the surface and was picked up by the Australian Navy. And after enduring four days and four nights in this horrible situation, Tony finally heard the sound of hope, the sound of someone banging on the top of his boat there. He took a a few deep breaths, and with the remaining strength he had, he swam under the boat. And as he emerged into the daylight and to meet his rescuers, apparently the first words he said, a non-religious man, he said, thank you, God, it's a miracle. And it was published all over the world's news. Not long after that, he signed up for another global yacht race. (laughs) For Tony, the distress signal that led to his rescue only carried the faintest of hopes. But for us who've put our trust in Jesus Christ and what he's done, the hope we share together is so much more certain. It's not a vague hope of what God might do, but a certain hope grounded on what God has already done. A hope grounded in chesed love, and Yeshua's salvation already achieved for us by Jesus, his death, his resurrection. And so we can sing words like we did earlier, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is the cause of our hope that Psalm 13 ultimately points to, while at the same time inviting us to be completely open and real with God, about the challenges we face right now. And so let's reflect once more as we close on these words for the hopeless as Ivana and Andrew come um, to share them with us one more time. And then we'll go into a, a time of ministry from that. So thank you.
1: Psalm 13, with the director of music, a psalm of David. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death, and my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me.